0: But 1 Kings 22, beginning in verse 41, God's word says, Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shehi. He walked in the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Jehoshaphat also made peace with the king of Israel. Now, the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat and his might that he showed and how he warred, and all are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Judah? And from the land he exterminated the remnant of the male cult prostitutes who remained in the days of his father, Asa. There was no king in Edom. A deputy was king. Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold. But they did not go, for the ships were wrecked at Ezion-Geber. Then Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with your servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat was not willing. And Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers, and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father. And Jehoram his son reigned in his place. As Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the seventeenth year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of his father, in the way of his mother, in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal, and worshipped him, and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done." Well, 55 years ago, tomorrow, a sermon rocked evangelicals in the United Kingdom. John Stott was a 45-year-old evangelical minister in the Anglican Church, and Martin Lord Jones was a 66-year-old evangelical minister in an evangelical free church. Well, in 1966, Stott was the chairman of the National Assembly of Evangelicals, which was riding a wave of ecumenical enthusiasm. Yet into this enthusiasm came Lloyd-Jones, who vigorously called for evangelicals to separate from denominations that had churches and pastors with heretical theology and unite with all the various evangelical churches. Well, this was against the stated purposes of the conference, and Stott, who, though he was the chairman and supposed to function as an MC, came up and publicly rebuked Lloyd-Jones for his sermon. He said he was on the wrong side of history, and of the Bible. Well, those issues are still with us today. The question is, when should we separate from people, and when should we join with those who are different? We deal with a similar phenomenon in our country, but under a different term, cancel culture. Cancel culture believes in separation, complete separation from those who hold beliefs that are out of line with what some people think. Thus, when someone expresses an opinion or a former opinion comes to light, social pressure, and due to social pressure, they're shamed, perhaps fired, maybe forced to resign, or even so-called canceled. For example, last summer, 2020, during the height of the race protests, David Shore, who worked for a Democratic consulting firm, tweeted research by a Princeton professor showing that violent protests don't lead to change that is desired. Well, he was condemned called a racist, and fired within three days. He was not condemning the protests, just saying maybe they aren't effective. And yet this is nothing new, for in 2003, the country music group, the Dixie Chicks, were ashamed and said publicly that they did not wish that President Bush was from the state of Texas. They soon received death threats, were called Sodom's Angels, radio stations burned their CDs, children, a CD is a round plastic disc... (laughs) that you could somehow magically put music on. We didn't burn them back then, but we were getting way off track. Nonetheless, radio stations stopped playing them. They were canceled. What often happens is when someone from our side gets canceled, we scream, un-American, people should have freedom of speech. Yet when someone from the other side gets canceled, we say, there's consequences to actions. We're allowed to vote with our feet and our money. And yet all of this is really raising the question... When should we separate, if ever? And I think if we're honest, we all admit there are some times that we should have separation. If someone commits murder, I believe they should be separated from society, put in a place where they are no longer able to have a job or harm other people. And we could wade into numerous situations, but what I want us to think about is when should we separate? Is there such a thing as Christian cancel culture? And ultimately, we're going to see that for the Christians, the goal is not to cancel. The goal is to restore. We're looking for a restorative culture that is bringing people back to God. So to look at this first, we'll see what's going on in our passage in 1 Kings 22, 41 through 53. Because King Jehoshaphat is learning when he should separate. And then we will consider both sides of the spectrum. What are the times when God wants us to separate? When separation is desired by God. And then on the other side, what are times when God doesn't want us to separate? Separation that God despises. But first, what's going on in our passage here? Well, we should note we've reached the end of 1 Kings. But before ending it, you should realize originally this was one book. Yet they can't make scrolls, or they couldn't make scrolls indefinitely long. So at some point... They had to wrap it, and now we have it split into two. And yet, if you remember back to the beginning of 1 Kings, it began with a united kingdom, and King David was old and passing the throne onto Solomon, his son. And yet now, as we've gone through, the kingdom has split with Rehoboam leading the tribes to the north, into the nation still called Israel, at the capital of Samaria, and Solomon's son Rehoboam keeping the other tribe, Judah in the south was the capital of Jerusalem. And the story has gone back and forth, as the author of 1 Kings has told some of Israel, some of Judah, back and forth. And we've just had a long stretch dealing with King Ahab of Israel. And now the story is turning back to the southern kingdom, Judah and King Jehoshaphat. Now we actually heard of him before because he went to battle with Ahab, but now the author is zooming in, so to speak, on his reign. And we finally read of a king who we're told in verse 43 he does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. It's been a long time hearing that in First Kings. And yet the author continues that Jehoshaphat sinned by not removing the high places because there people would sacrifice to false gods. And he also sinned by making peace with the king of Israel. If you turn to Second Chronicles 18, you don't need to, but if you turn there, you would learn that this peace was a marriage alliance that Jehoshaphat made with Ahab. Jehoshaphat had his son Jehoram marry Ahab's daughter. And long term, the implications were deadly. 2 Kings 8, 17-18 says, Jehoram, that's Jehoshaphat's son, was 32 years old when he became king. And he reigned 8 years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the ways of the king of Israel as the house of Ahab done. Why? For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. Jehoshaphat thought he was bringing great deals. Great, we've got an alliance. And yet it led to the destruction of Judah. Yet in the short term, everything looked good. You could almost imagine someone saying, Look, Jehoshaphat, Psalm one declares, Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. You know, to the north, those are our brothers. Let's unite a marriage alliance. Everything will be good. Isn't it great we're back together? And as we go through, we'll see, hey, and we can go to battle together like we saw last week. Or we can do economic trade together. We'll make ships. We'll, like in Solomon's day, go to Ophir and get gold. This is wonderful. We have peace. And yet everything is not great because the author lets us know that part of Jehoshaphat's sin was making peace. And you might be thinking, well, wait, wait. Didn't Jesus say, blessed are the peacemakers? Well, yes, he did. You might be wondering, wait, didn't Paul write, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all? Well, yes, he did, Romans 12, 18. Didn't the author of Hebrews state, strive for peace with everyone? Yes, Hebrews 12, 14. Well, if that's the case, why is it declared to be a sin for Jehoshaphat to make peace with Israel. Well the problem is. God does not want peace over falsehood. He doesn't want peace that denies the truth. Or peace with those who are currently attacking his people. You know, Jehoshaphat made peace with a nation that has been. And was still killing God's prophets. He makes peace with the most wicked king and queen in Israelite history. Not only did he just make some peace deal over there, he brought into his own family, into his own throne room, what will be the seeds of its own destruction. Well, if you're reading along, the story then has a twist, like a pastor seeming to come to his end of his sermon and takes it off again. You thought, well, I thought that was the end. Because he starts to tell in verse 45 of... And the rest of his deeds are done in the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, which is normally when they start to wrap up the reign and you're like, okay, we're going to hear the next king. And the the author takes off again and starts to tell more of Jehoshaphat, of what's going on with his life. And now he tells of him sinning, not by the high places, but we read in verses 46 through 48 of a sinful alliance with Israel, in shipping jehoshaphat he made ships at tarshish were told to get gold but they were shipwrecked now we see this clear sinful connection by looking at the parallel in second chronicles 20 there in verse 35 it says after this jehoshaphat king of judah joined with ahaziah king of israel who acted wickedly well what did he do he joined him in building ships that's what's talking about here in first kings to go to Tarshish. And they built the ships in Ezion-Geber. Then Eliezer, the son of Dodavahu of marishah prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have joined with Ahaziah, the Lord will destroy what you have made. And the ships were wrecked and were not able to go to Tarshish. So God desires certain separation. In this case, He wanted separation from the wicked northern Israel. And yet after this, it seems that Jehoshaphat learned his lesson. Because in verse 49, when Ahaziah comes again and says, hey, let's do this again. Yeah, those ships were wrecked, but let's try again. Jehoshaphat has heard from the prophet of the Lord and now says, no, I will no longer do this. And the passage makes clear, all of this is because Ahab and his son Ahaziah are actively rebelling against the Lord. That's the end of the chapter. It's detailing Ahaziah's continued sin. So it's not that Jehoshaphat is leading Ahaziah and Israel to peace as he leads them back to God. He's making peace as they're actively rebelling against the Lord and then bringing that into his own household. And this is a very important topic, and so that's why we're going to spend some time on it. But as we do, we need to remember two things first what's happening here in first kings was the god's people judah as a nation under the mosaic covenant now today we are not a nation and we're not under the mosaic covenant in the way that they were another thing we have to remember as we try to apply this today is that when jesus came he fulfilled the law And so the Old Testament laws are fulfilled and transformed for Christians of every nation. Thus, God still speaks to us from the Old Testament. That's why we're preaching from it. But we have to be careful that we don't make one-to-one application. Okay, Jehoshaphat couldn't make a commercial deal with a sinner. Uh, I'd love to help you neighbor fix our fence, but you don't go to church, so we can't work on our fence together. Well, no. That's not what's happening here and that's not the application you should make from it. Nor is it to say you can't work for a boss that's an unbeliever or even serve, many of you, in a military for a nation that always doesn't do things that please the Lord. Nor is this story calling for an Amish-like life in which we have to completely separate from all unbelievers because that would be sin. As we'll see, there are times to separate, like Jehoshaphat learned, But there are also times when we shouldn't separate. In fact, it's sinful to separate. And in fact, this truth is so important that if you look at our church's constitution, we lay out several guideposts, and this is one of them, a practice of biblical separation. So how is it that we should consider this? Well, let's look first at separation God desires. And under that, our second point, the separation God desires, we should first see the main way God wants us to separate from unbelievers, and that is that we shouldn't get married to unbelievers. It says in 2 Corinthians 6:14 and 17, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Again, this does not mean a complete separation from all unbelievers. For Jesus prayed in John 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus still sends us into this world. Second Corinthians, though, is referring to our closest relationship, specifically marriage. Now, we can't Misunderstand this, because 1 Corinthians makes clear in chapter 7, if you are already married, you should not then separate or get a divorce. You should try to stay with them and bless them by living out your godly life. Yet, like we've seen with Jehoshaphat, bringing in marriage with an unbeliever will have long-term effects. And that's the clearest way the New Testament calls us to separate from unbelievers. But the Bible also calls for separating from professing believers... Now I want to be clear here professing believers within your church or here our church in three situations. So let's look at those three. First, if they are continually contentious or divisive. Titus 3:10 through 11 says, as for a person who stirs up divisions, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self condemned notice that this divisive person is not just removed because they're divisive but rather that they won't stop being so you know, to create unneeded disharmony in the local church by stirring up division whether that be gossip secondary issues or harping on things that are your hobby horse and causing division is harming the unity in the church that God desires And this is one of the big differences between the cancel culture we see around us and what Christians should be doing. Because here it's not just, well, you did something, we're all angry, we're kicking you out. Notice what Titus said after warning him once and twice. We try and talk to them. We try to restore them. Hey, we don't want you to be acting in this way God doesn't want. So listen and come back and act the way that God wants you to in fact, we're wanting unity, but unity around the truth. And that leads to the second time we should separate from believers in our church, and that is if they teach falsehood. Paul says in Romans sixteen, seventeen, and 18, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Now it's interesting. I don't know if you caught who's causing the separation or the division here. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions. Well, then he goes on and he says, those who teach the false doctrine." And we often flip this around. We say, the person who goes up and confronts the person says, you know what you said, that's not right. We go, well, you're divisive. Why are you bringing up this issue? And yet, it's the person, Paul says, who is teaching wrongly, who is the divisive one. Let me explain. If I said, and I don't believe this, but just for example's sake, if I said, Jesus is not God, I immediately caused division in our church. Because now there's one side who agrees with me, hopefully no one, And then there's everyone else for you to come up and go, Jeremy, you're wrong. Categorically, you're not being divisive. You're merely pointing out the division I have created in our church. And so you in love should come and say to me, you are wrong and you need to change your view. And so here, Paul is warning them, look, there are divisive people who will teach things that aren't true. And you need to bring unity by talking to them. But when you talk to them, if they won't do anything, then you need to have nothing to do with them, he says, or separate from them. Well, why? Well, actually, you do this out of love. One for them, so they know they're not teaching what is true. But I don't know if you remember what Paul said. He said, at the end, do you do this so that their smooth talk and flattery won't deceive the hearts of the naive. If you allow me to keep teaching... If I was saying that, Jesus is not God, eventually someone in the church might start saying, you know, the pastor agrees this. And I hear people online say this, so it must be true. Well, out of love for the other people in this church, you should say, no, we're not going to give you a voice. We're in our church at all. We love the other people in here, and we're not going to let them hear something that is false. Thus, God desires separation in the church. And it's important. We're talking about in a local body here, for one, we said continually contentious people, two, those who hold false doctrine on essentials, and also three, if someone lives in unrepentant sin. Go ahead and turn to First Corinthians five. It was read for us earlier, and I was also informed while I was being read. This is a passage in the women's Bible study tonight, so getting emphasis numerous times. Hopefully I don't disagree with what the book says, or vice versa. But nonetheless. Uh, Here, Paul is warning that they are allowing in their church someone who is living in unrepentant sexual sin. Now, I don't think many people in our church would say this, but some would say, well, that's Paul. Well, Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 18, and I also think what Paul says is what Jesus wanted too. But nonetheless, Matthew 18, 15 through 20, Jesus affirms these same things, that if someone is living in unrepentant, and that is the key, unrepentant sin what we should do is remove them now notice that's not the first step if you read through matthew 18 or here the goal is always to restore them so you go and you talk to them privately and if they won't listen jesus says you go and get others and if they won't listen then you take it to the church and yet the goal in all of this is restore fellowship And yet, though the New Testament is clear on all this, Christians often think the exact opposite. When I was in college, I met up with a friend and she was telling me, yeah, I'm decided to go to a new church. And I was asking, well, why? What's going on? Why are you going to a new church? And she said, well, the church I'm going to is getting rid of someone. I said, well, why are they doing that? And she told me, well, he's been doing this thing and they said they've talked to him and he won't change. And so they're having him leave. And I don't think that's loving or forgiving, and so I can't go to a church like that. And yet, the church was doing, as best as I could understand, and the best as she explained it, exactly what they should have been doing. John Stott writes, If we can have fellowship with a sinning, unrepentant brother, we reveal not the depth of our love, but its shallowness. For we are doing what is not for his highest good. Forgiveness, which bypasses the need for repentance, issues not from love, but sentimentality. You know, my friend, and many Christians have misunderstood God's demand for us to live holy lives and the transforming power of the gospel that should create new actions in us. You know, sadly, Christians often think, well, yes, obedience is good if you kind of want to have a better life, a blessed life, but it's really not that important. And yet Jesus calls us to holy lives. And if we're living in unrepentant sin, it shows either we don't know that or we don't care. And either way, out of love, we should want them to know what Jesus said and to follow him. And yet we often confuse this and think we're not being loving to get into their life. Well, that's their private business. Who am I to say that's judgmental? And yet again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer points out, Nothing is so cruel as the tenderness that consigns another to sin nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin you know just as out of love we don't allow heretical teaching in the church so also out of love we don't allow people to think oh sin isn't serious you know Paul if you look down in 1 Corinthians 5 explains why this is so serious look at verse 6, your boasting, he says, is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now here he's using the metaphor, the image of bread. And once you put a little leaven in it, it doesn't just affect 1% or 10%. The leaven affects the whole loaf. And Paul's saying, look, when you allow sin in the church, it's not just, okay, well, We'll let them sin. It's no big deal. Eventually, it is going to have the leavening effect of affecting the whole church. And so out of love for the individual, out of love for the church, out of love for God, we need to confront others. Now, let's be clear. The point is not that we're junior Holy Spirits running around trying to be their conscience and convicting them of sin, nor is it that any little time they do something, we have to go up. Did you know that's a sin? We're talking about consistent, unrepentant sin that should be confronted. And if we fail to do this, we're unloving to them, to church, to the church and the Lord. It's the very thing that Jehoshaphat was unwilling to do, to remove sin, and it led to their downfall. And yet we've got to be clear, while God does desire some separation... There's some he despises, and we need to see that next. And we're going to see the first one right where we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because the first wrong separation is when we separate with unbelievers in personal relationships. Look down at 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But then he adds, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or they're greedy, and swindlers or idolaters, since then you need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if they're saying I'm a Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with those judge, judging those outside the church? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. And so what seems to be going on is Paul had written to them, look, you need to be separated from these sexually immoral people. And they're like, yes, the world is horrible. We don't want anything to do with them. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. I meant the sexually immoral in your church. You're misapplying this. You need to take care of the sin in your church. The people in the world, they're going to act like the world. Don't worry about that. And what we've misunderstood is that yes we do need to be distinct from the culture in regard to our character but not separate from the culture in where we live and work and yet sadly christians in the u.s have completely flipped this teaching upside down you have listened to many pundits the greatest threat to christians is those people out there who are so immoral They, they want to get rid of our freedoms they're so bad and then we say our country is on a downward spiral. And in many ways, our country is on a downward spiral. But the biggest threat is not out there. The biggest threat to the church is in the church. You know, Sadly, most churches, most Christians don't bat an eye if the couple in their church is living together before they're married. And Christians have an almost identical rate of divorce as the secular culture. Now, I'm not saying all divorce is wrong. There are times, biblically, where it's allowed but definitely not at a 50% rate along with the culture. You know, most churches are full and fine with members who gossip, they slander. I've had online arguments with Christians who say, I'll never pray for this president, and they show no respect. And yet those are clear, unrepentant sins that we're told to purge from our midst. Yet we've become so concerned about them, the world, when Paul says, be concerned about us, the church and the bible is clear we should want unbelievers in our lives if you look at first corinthians 14 we should want unbelievers in our church as long it says clear you're an unbeliever and we're wanting you to know the truth so when that happens paul's saying don't be surprised that they act like unbelievers they're going to do immoral things they're going to be greedy they're going to do things that are wrong but that's fine you're not going to win them to christ if you're never with them. Now, of course, this is not meaning you have to be friends with every single unbeliever. Yes, there are times to get out rid of some of those relationships. We can't cover every unique circumstance, so we need wisdom. But generally, we need to purge evil within the church, not be going around always condemning the world. But second, God despises when we wrongly separate from believers. It's not just unbelievers we can wrongly separate from. In the book of Galatians, we read of the Apostle Peter, who became fearful of some Christians who were saying, look, yes, Jesus saved us, but we still need to follow Old Testament laws, circumcision, and holy days. And these people were starting to shun Gentile believers who were not following all the Jewish practices. And Peter began to fall in with them. And so he began to separate himself wrongly, from Gentile believers. But notice what Paul says, Galatians 2.11, I opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. He had separated from believers in a sinful way. Now, every wrong separation from believers is not as serious as Peter's, but it is serious. And one seriously wrong division we can make is with believers on secondary conscious, conscience issues. So earlier we read Romans 16 where Paul is saying, look, if they're teaching wrong, they're the divisive ones and we need to warn them and then separate. And yet Paul also says in Romans 14:5, well, what about holy days or other things? And he writes, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Since it's holy days, Paul says this is a conscience issue. And so he doesn't call for confrontation, nor does he, like in Romans 16, say they're being divisive for having a different opinion. In fact, he'll go on to say that's fine, but he goes on and says, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, and he ends with, so then let us pursue for what makes peace and for mutual upbuilding so on some issues essential doctrinal issues that's the romans 16 case where we need to say no you're being divisive in teaching that and we will not allow that but on other issues secondary issues where christians can have different conscience of what they should do we should pursue for what makes peace and mutual upbuilding and yet, sadly, Christians have often made secondary, non-essential conscience issues essential for fellowship in their church. You don't want a King James-only Bible? This isn't the church for you. That's actually not true. But as an example, if you school your children in that wrong way, whatever that wrong way is, well, then you're not really serving the Lord and you're not welcome here. You drink alcohol or you don't drink alcohol, then we're not going to worship with you And we could go on and on on the secondary issues that Christians have allowed to cause separation when they should not have. You know, this is really the worst of the modern cancel culture. Because if you don't agree with them on everything, then you're out. Down to the smallest little detail. I mean, even the David Shore example that I mentioned at the beginning, for merely tweeting research that this isn't going to help our cause he was fired. I mean, he wasn't even saying I'm opposed to what you're doing. I'm just, he was just saying, this maybe isn't an effective strategy. Ah, you're gone. You, you can't say that. And yet, sadly, I see the same thing online with many Christians. To give one example, I have a friend who kind of publicly, I didn't have much of a voice, but nonetheless kind of publicly called out this Christian because he's gone woke and against the gospel. And when I said, well, what did he say? He sent me an article in which the person clearly said, I'm actually not holding to all these things, but I think we haven't considered race issues as seriously as we should. So I replied and said, actually, I don't think he's saying what you're saying. And he says, oh, yes, here's another article, which again was saying the same thing. And I said, I'm fine if you disagree with that person about race, but they're very clear they're not holding to all these other things. He goes, no, no, you just don't know them well enough. It's the same thing happening online that's happening in the culture. If you don't agree with me 100% on every issue, whether that be race or politics or economics or whatever, I'm done. You're not a Christian anymore. I'm going to publicly shame you and say that, that ministry, they put one article I don't like. They're heretics. Now, yes, if they're denying essential truths of the gospel, then by all means, be clear that they're heretics. I'm not saying to peace peace but we have to realize when do we separate and when do we go secondary issue? You know, I really disagree. So maybe I'm not going to read their articles, but that doesn't mean they're heretics and I need to separate from them. So we need to keep this balance of standing up for truth on essential doctrines and yet allowing freedom on the secondary conscious conscience issues. Well, the third Place God despises when we wrongly continue, wrongly separate is when we continue to separate from repentant believers. So I think I'm kind of muddy that. Let me be clear. The third place is when we continue to separate from repentant believers that God despises. We read First Corinthians five of this man who is living in unrepentant sexual sin. But if you read Second Corinthians and specifically chapter six, Paul writes again. For such a one, and I believe the one in First Corinthians 5, this punishment by the majority is enough, so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You know, if we were to ever separate from our midst someone for sin, it's not for retribution, it's for restoration. And thus at any point, if they repent, then we welcome them back. You know, we're not looking For a pound of flesh. We're not wanting control over people's lives. We're not removing them because they don't support our vision. We're not giving them scarlet letters to wear for the rest of their life. The goal of Christian separation is always for restoration completely. Not for embarrassment. Not to be vindictive. Not to save the church's name. But that they might have full fellowship with us and ultimately with God. You know, we don't want cancel culture. We want restoration culture. And we've touched on some clear areas where the Bible says we need separation and where we don't need separation. And there are many other areas where we could have conversation. How about pro-life rally? How much do we all need to be in alignment? What about at a Christian conference or a Christian evangelistic outreach? How much do we need to agree on issues To join there. What about with friends and family? Who are any one of those continually contentious? Who are denying essential truths? Who are living in unrepentant sin? What do we do with them? What about Christian universities? How much do they allow professors to pursue ideas? And how much do they need to stick to doctrinal standards? What about companies who are supporting damaging philosophies? Should we shop with them? Or should we separate Those are all good questions. And I hope you're engaging in those things and looking at God's word, considering how do we wrestle with, yes, I need to separate sometimes, but not all the time. And I could maybe be separating when I shouldn't. And maybe I need to actually be more peacemaking over here. And I need to be more firm over here. You know, all of this matters because as Isaiah 59, 2 declares, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Your sin separates us from God. And if we're going to be faithfully God's image, then we need to show that sin brings separation. Yet that's not the whole story. For Isaiah 59 ends with, And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Separation, but yet holded, held out the hope of salvation. You see, God wants salvation so much that He sent His Son, who was then separated from Him and put under His wrath, so that we wouldn't know separation, but that we might be saved, that we may be brought back. And so that's really the model for us. When do we separate? Sin. When do we welcome back? Forgiveness restoration when they have turned from their sins and come back to the lord and so may we be faithful in our actions to show god's actions of separation but yet hoping for salvation let's pray oh lord these are difficult times and yet you have given us a lamp to our feet and a light to our path in your word oh lord may we be humble The areas where we have been separating where we shouldn't, may we seek peace. Where we have been proclaiming a peace where we should seek separation, may we be faithful and firm. Lord, as the issues and the times get harder, may we show your character to this world. Living as faithful lights so that people might know the truth, find peace in you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.